HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey, what's up? This is John Norris, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. All right. Once again, you have tuned in to the Heritage Radio Network. It is Thursday at one o'clock and you are listening to the Farm Report. We are coming to you live from the back of Roberta's on a beautiful sunny day in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Uh, We are here in studio with Heather Carlucci Rodriguez and Alyssa Westervelt of the Chefs for Marcellus. Welcome to the studio, ladies. Good afternoon. Excellent to have you here. So today we are going to be taking uh, our listeners through a bunch of issues with regards to fracking. So I thought we would start a little bit by by explaining what exactly is uh, Chefs for Marcellus. Chefs for Marcellus was started actually not long ago in August uh, when Hillary Baum of the Bound Forum uh, came to me and knew that I had already had much concern and much to say uh, quite loudly um, about my concern about hydrofracking in New York State and the effect that it would have on farmers. And I mean, how did that issue kind of get on your radar or Hillary's radar? I mean, with all the kind of different stuff happening in the state and around agriculture, why was it that this kind of jumped out? Well, Hillary's always been very much on the forefront of water and food issues uh, in and around New York. Uh, for myself, uh, my family's had a house in Sullivan County for many years, and I think the word just started coming up. I knew it was spoken about m- with my family, and then uh, friends up there started being quite aggressive about thoughts, feelings, and I had to educate myself on that, and especially because my job has to do with the food shed. And what is your job? <laughs> um, right now, I'm the executive pastry chef at Print Restaurant, which is a farm-to-table restaurant in Hell's Kitchen. Excellent. So what exactly is the organization designed to do? Like, what is your role? What is your mission? Our mission is to really spread the word um, among our business uh, of, in the food world, purveyors, chefs, restaurateurs, other farmers, uh, to the effects of fracking on our food system and our business, you know, and what could happen economically to our area. Okay, so I want to talk into a little bit about, I mean, we, we have talked a little bit about fracking on the show before, but just so that we're all on the same page, maybe you can give us kind of a quick definition of, of what it actually is. Uh, hydrofracking, um, 
is a uh, high power drilling that goes about two miles down into um, what would, would be a shale bed. And for us, the shale bed that affects us most is the Marcellus Shale. Uh, it covers much of Pennsylvania, goes into Ohio, Michigan, and, uh, and also well into New York. Uh, covers Finger Lake area down to Sullivan County and little bits of um, Hudson County, um, Hudson Valley, pardon me. Um, and what they do is uh, with these huge um, drill heads, drill with enormous amount of carcinogens in two, like I said, two miles down um, to release uh, what they call natural gas, which is really just the spin for carcinogenic methane. Okay, so then they're extracting this to use as a, a alternative fuel source. Yes, that's okay. correct. Um, and so the chefs from Marcellus are different chefs who've taken a stand against fracking, or oh, it's chefs, restaurateurs, any any sort of food purveyor, any sort of food business person, farmers. Uh, we don't we don't discriminate <laughs> against who will sign on, uh, and we've it's been surprising because for an organization that's only been going since August, we've attracted enormous amount of attention. Sure. Well, I mean, I think definitely anything that threatens the food system is is of concern for a lot of people, in particular in the food world. So, what um, what about it? I mean, what about fracking is is bad for food? I mean, I, I, I you know you're extracting the gas, but how does that impact um, you know what we're eating or like how people are able to grow food? Well, it directly impacts uh, our watershed, and you can't do anything without water, namely grow food, and it does not only you know relegate itself to you know farm to table which of course we're going by way of the farmers because this is the closest to the land that we can get but it really affects everything industrial food fast food there's nothing that's untouched by it and most areas that have been devastated by fracking uh you know food goes into the body and the body can't handle the carcinogens so fracking is not currently occurring in new york state but it is happening in surrounding areas uh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, many wells have been dug before there was a moratorium, and so the wells are just sitting there. Leases are being signed um, by the drilling companies, you know, uh, or their leases are being re- uh, presented by the drilling companies, and leases are being signed by farmers and landowners who, right now, you know, we're at a time where I think if, if you live in the world we do, it seems like there's a resurgence of farmers, but then there are plenty of farmers who have just been devastated for years. You know, like commodity dairy farmers are just, you know, they're being destroyed by the system and are more than happy to sign off to, you know, uh, as far as they're concerned, the drillers will come in, drill for five years and leave and are told that their land will be, you know, then untouched and ready to, to farm again, which isn't true. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the sales pitch as far as, uh, you know, putting in a drill head is not that we're going to come and pop, pump toxic chemicals into your land. So the there there is kind of some some of the stuff is happening as far as, re, you know, getting people kind of set up so that when there's like a go that that drilling will be able to commence. You said there was a mor- moratorium, so there was never any drilling happening in New York State, or there, it's like in a in process right now where we're kind of waiting for some. We're waiting at the moment. I mean, you know, you realize that all the areas surrounding New York, like Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is just it's been a free for all for the drilling companies. Uh, much of Texas also, and it goes into you know parts of California, Wyoming. It's it, in many many places. So can you talk about maybe some examples of uh, like areas where things went wrong? I mean, are there specific instances that we can point to and say like, hey, here's like proof that 
that that this is a dangerous practice or sure this I mean the state of Pennsylvania you know majo- the majority of farmers who are affected by by fracking and the people living around fracking sites are uh, experiencing terrible terrible disease um, loss of memory uh, you know there are pockets of, of cancers and you know going or tumors uh, farm animals are just being diseased you know left and right it's been a very difficult time for a lot of these people who within best faith you know signed their lease so they're kind of stuck in that situation now yeah i mean you have to figure you know farming is not a big money business for you know small local farmers they can't pick up and move sure and uh, as far as i mean this is fracking i think often gets parsed as like a new technology or a, a new thing but it seems like there is some amount of history there. I mean, do you know where the industry kind of arose from or wh- how it got started in the U.S.? Oh, I think from what I know, uh, I don't know, you know, exact details of history, but I believe it's been going on since like the early 50s, late 40s. Not, not in the extent that it is now. It was more of a, a test procedure. So do you, what do you think? Yeah. So there were technological improvements that happened in the last 15 years that made it financially feasible. And so that's why um, there's been this there's been this resurgence of, um, of fracking. And it's become an issue recently is because now all of a sudden it's financially viable to okay. extract gas that way. But there's another also inside of thinking that most people believe that uh, they can't make the money that they've put into it, but it's a little too late to pull out. So kind of rather than cutting your losses and run, you're going to kind of keep going, get get what you can get and then get out. That's right. Um, and, and then what is the gas used for upon extraction? I mean, how how is it entering the energy grid? You know, running cars, buses, all the things that people want to do. <laughs> And um, that, so there, there's currently no. Uh, when, you know, we had uh, Ken Ken Jaffe of the uh, Slope Beef Farm on, kind of talking about how fracking was impacting him as a farmer a few months ago, and he was talking a lot about issues that you touched on with regards to safety of the food supply, and had said that restaurants, yours included, print and and uh, other food, uh, other areas where he sells his beef, like the Park Slope Food Co-op, had already kind of stated that if. Um, fracking started to occur in that area that they wouldn't buy from him anymore so and and he had mentioned that that was really an issue of like it's this thing that you're releasing kind of into the air but there's no kind of tests on the back end to to determine whether or not the food is safe and is that like the primary reason that people say no or i think i think you know restaurants chefs and of course food co-ops are very uh socially you know aware we have a responsibility. I mean, we're putting food in people's bodies. That's a huge responsibility. It's why we even have, you know, the health department. So for us not to really think ahead and say, we're doing everything possible. I mean, I can say, you know, our restaurant especially because we're, you know, running around with our fists in the air about this. Um, we're doing everything possible because we have such close relationships with the farmers. But the fact is, if, if there is a problem and that, you know, if there's a huge well being fracked mm-hmm. right next to a farm, there's very little chance that we know of right now that that food will be uncontaminated. Very little. So I have to think twice, and it's not just about feeding my customers, it's about feeding myself, and it's about where my money comes from. And 
you know, and really how we're going to service ourselves and the people around us. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it's like drawing out a lot of parallels with, you know, buying food that's imported from Japan that people are like often concerned about now, like after the after the tsunami and kind of the like, you know, nuclear nuclear ex- explosion is happening. There's no like uh what are the systems in place to kind of protect uh, us as consumers or consumers in that region where you essentially devastate agriculture of a whole kind of section uh, of the country, which seems kind of crazy. So where where is this stuff kind of getting decided? decided? Is it in the legislature? Is it in the courts? I mean, who's, who's kind of pushing the button to say like yay or nay? Right now, we're just waiting for our governor to make a decision. That's pretty much it. <laughs> and do we have any sense from his office, like where he's at or, or what we're looking at in the short term or near term as far as even when he might issue a statement or a decision? I think, I think it's a little tricky right now. I mean, as somebody, obviously, who would rather not even think that this is going to happen at all, but, you know, maybe would take all that money and put it into real alternative energy and, and our farmers, um, you know, uh, if he's not answering the, with the big no, <laughs> you know, um, that's not good enough. And of course, you know, people who, you know, are working for the drilling companies and the farmers and the landowners who really want those leases, if he doesn't say yes, it's not good enough for them. Um, what we do know, uh, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for him. Maybe deep in his heart, he knows it's bad. He doesn't want to do it. Uh, but he also has presidential aspirations and that puts everything in a very different decision of course if he said no it would create um a level for us uh, you know something to look towards it would create a completely different quality of making decisions for government on agriculture and farming everybody looks to new york for so many things it would be wonderful to be able to be the state that just banned the whole thing stood up and said no that's right you guys have the website where people can visit and sign on if they want to show kind of their support for the organization, Absolutely. but also their stance against um, uh, fracking. But you also have some events kind of in the works. We do on uh, the 29th of this month at, um, pardon me, <laughs> I have to get all my details down. Um, we have an event called Protecting Our Farms, Food and Water from Fracking. And it's at the Journeys Culinary and Herb Center in Brooklyn. And uh, tickets are 25 bucks, and there's going to be a big cook-off. All these different uh, chefs from all over New York are actually going to be doing a big pesto cook-off, and everything's going to be from the Marcellus area and all the farms that, that have been giving us great greens from there. So that should be really fun. And then I don't have an exact date yet, but we uh, are very lucky to have signed Will Blunt, who's one of the heads of StarChefs.com onto our board and we're going to be doing a bigger ticket fundraiser this summer in July with more of the, the bigger name chefs who are more than happy to, to put out a good spread for everybody. Nice. That sounds yeah. like a delicious event. I hope so. <laughs> um, we are going to head to a quick break and when we come back we're going to bring Greg Schwartz of Will-O-Wisp Organic Farm on to give us uh, his view from the farmer's perspective on fracking in New York State. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River To 
the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill. Where the air smell like snakes and we'd shoot with our pistols. But empty pop bottles was all we would kill. And daddy won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County down by the Green River where paradise lay. Well, Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. All right, we're back. You're listening to the Farm Report on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are live in studio with Heather Carlucci Rodriguez and Alyssa, Alyssa Westervelt, whose name I keep stumbling over. All those S's are tough for me. From Chefs from Marcellus. And then on the line with us is Greg Schwartz of Willow Wisp Organic Farm. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's great to have you in. So uh, I would love to start with maybe you can give us a little bit uh, of your background. I know that you're currently uh, farming, but you also have a history as uh, you were the former executive director of NOFA and in, been involved with a bunch of different farms. So maybe you can catch us up quickly on on your history. Sure. The, the short version is that uh, I moved uh, to this area, which, by the way, my farm is located in the uh, northeast Pennsylvania in the upper Delaware River Valley. Uh, and right uh, on the other side of the river is Sullivan County, New York, which uh, Heather mentioned earlier. And I moved to Sullivan County about 12 years ago to do an apprenticeship on a farm. And uh, the thought was just to do a six-month stint to learn more about where my food came from. And I quickly fell in love with farming and, uh, and also with this area. So I spent uh, the next seven years after that apprenticing and, and working on other farms in the area and uh, then I took a pause from full-time farming and uh, as you mentioned I was uh, the executive director of the Northeast Organic Farming Association of New York for uh, many years um, and you know previous to that I'd served on the board of directors for a while um, so after working with NOFA New York for a number of years I decided it was time to return to full-time farming um, in 2007, while I was director, I, my, my wife, Tannis Kowalczyk, and myself uh, purchased our, our farm here. So that was 2007. And then uh, took a couple of years to get it, get it set up. And uh, 2009 was our first year of uh, full production. Awesome. How are things going so far this year? It's been such a wonky weather season. I think everyone's kind of like trying to sit on their hands a little bit and wait to make sure it's not going to get too cold. But how are things looking production-wise for you? Uh, you know, it's going to be an interesting roller coaster ride, I think. You know, March was, um, you know, a, a tricky time. As you said, we had to successfully uh, uh, hold our horses, as it were. Um, you know, so we're middle of April now, so, thing, you know, things are in full swing, and, you know, uh, our greenhouses are popping, and first plantings are out in the field. The tricky part is that we are uh, actually radically dry, Um we have not had very much rain at all, and uh, we're forecast to get a decent amount of rain this weekend. But if we don't get rain uh, this weekend, then we're actually going to be uh, getting the irrigation pumps going, which I can't remember a time I've ever irrigated in April. 
Yeah, no, which I've is, definitely heard like a lot of people experience. I've heard the term winter drought, which which I've yeah. never heard before. But indeed, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Which you know that that affects the you know the the land, but also uh, you know it's curious to think about what our rivers and the reservoirs, you know, in particular reservoirs that supply the drinking water for New York City. Things are quite low. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's unclear what might happen. In fact, I was just reading an article uh, this morning uh, that the Delaware River Basin Commission is just starting to, uh, you know, evaluate some of their, their drought planning, which, you know, has to do with uh, maintaining or controlling, you know, river flows. So it's could be, uh, it could be a very curious year, especially in comparison to uh, 2011, which was the exact opposite. Yeah, very wet. Very wet, yeah. Well, it's you know when you have like all those drought issues, bring up different kinds of uh, you know bacterial and and water safety issues. But um, you, what what so what type of production are you doing at Willow Wisp? Uh, we are a certified organic farm, and we grow about uh, over fifty different kinds of vegetables, uh, culinary herbs, and cut flowers. And we market all of it within about sixty miles of the farm to a, a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture two local farmers markets and we direct wholesale to uh, restaurants, retail stores and other institutional customers. And how did you uh, uh, get involved with Chefs for Marcellus? Well, uh, I was fortunate to uh, meet Heather at some point a couple of years ago um, and actually, you know, initially I think the first time that we met it was actually around this issue of fracking Um, and so, uh, you know, we had lots of conversations about what was happening, you know, as far as happening in our in our community here, um, in the in the Delaware River Valley, and then that kind of progressed, and you know, uh, had lots of conversations about uh, what was happening on, in the New York City restaurant scene. So I was really excited when Heather uh, launched this organization to raise the awareness uh, from the from the city dwellers' perspective because it's pretty important. Uh, as far as food supply goes, but also, um, you know, water supply. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to support uh, this campaign and, uh, and do what I can to give the perspective of a, of a farmer and someone that is a steward of the land in, in the area from which the water for New York City comes from. Yeah, so did that. I mean, you said you purchased your property back in 2007 and you are located in Pennsylvania. Did the frack was fracking uh, on your radar at that point? Was it something that you were concerned about or or how did you kind of start to think about that with regards to your own farm? Well, it was actually horrible timing. Um, the first uh, the first kind of dribbles about fracking uh, popped up about 6 months after we bought our farm. I had never heard of it before. I, you know, it was not really on anyone's radar at that point that uh, that that there was this Marcella shale uh, beneath our land. Um, and so, six months after we bought our farm, we started hearing things. You know, after a month or two of you know hearing little tidbits, I said, you know what, I better start. I better start looking into this. And you know, so that was almost five years ago now, which is amazing to think. Um, that uh, this has been going on that long, um, but so we we quickly kicked into high gear to to understand what this thing was and um, and to understand what what possible implications for you know for our farm businesses you know as well as 
for myself and my family. And, um, you know, basically, this is, uh, you know, the, the nutshell analysis is this, that at, at first um, I didn't understand the technology. There's, it's, uh, the way in which it's being implemented is new. I know that you were mentioning before, Heather, that, that the technology has been around since the 40s, which is true, except that the, this new way of doing it, uh, which is, uh, has a component of horizontal drilling to it, where they actually go down and then turn the drill bit and then go horizontally. Um, and then the mixture of chemicals that they use to actually uh, fracture the shale, that part is all brand new. And um, what's interesting is that we don't know what the chemicals are that they're using. And it's a fairly shocking situation because we have legislation in place, federal legislation, uh, that went into effect in the 70s that actually is responsible for cleaning up so many watersheds across the country and very close to home right here it, you can you can look at the history of the delaware river and the success of this legislation which the what i'm talking about is the uh, safe drinking water act and clean water act um, actually regulate uh, industry and say that they can't use certain things and that other things they can use but they has to it's regulated in other words it's it's monitored, and there's checks and balances on what can happen. So, um, how, I mean, so how, what, yeah, what how did they escape this um, rule? That, I mean, well, they they escaped the rule because in 2005, in the 2005 Energy Act, which was during the uh, Bush Cheney administration, uh, there was an exemption put in place for the gas and oil industry that they were exempt from. This federal environmental legislation. Um, the curious thing, of course, is uh, many people know something of the history of Mr. Cheney and that he was an executive of Halliburton, which uh, is one of the originators of hydraulic fracturing. Um, so they, since 2005, they've been able to roll this out uh, and not be subject to any of this legislation and, and the take-home message is to me um, if this is such a te- safe technology which many proponents of fracking uh, say how safe it is if in fact it is so safe why do they have to be exempted from this baseline environmental legislation this is not extreme environmental legislation I would call it extremely conservative I mean I would love to see much stronger regulations put in place for the protection of drinking water and aquifers, etc. But it's pretty baseline stuff. So if this technology is so safe, why do they need an exemption? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would love to hear uh, a response from any of our listeners out there. You can you know, check us out on the Facebook page or shoot us something via Twitter. Greg, I'm curious, um, when you, you know, started hearing uh, about fracking and there's kind of this percolating kind of vibe in your region amongst the farm community, were people responding to it in, in different ways? I mean, as far as uh, I, I want to say, like, maybe older generations of farmers versus new generations or across different farm types, if you were in, you know, livestock production versus vegetable production, was there any kind of splits that you were seeing as far as people's response to to some of the information you know i think the only 
split could be identical. It may be generational. That's I gotta have to think about that a little bit. But it, I think it probably is. Yes, based on on a farming type, you know, and just to kind of use the catch-all phrase of you know some of the more uh, sustainable farmers, you know, farmers practicing sustainable agriculture are uh, much more suspicious and and cautious. Um, and then, and the, and we represent a very small percentage of farmers in this region. Um, what happens, you know, this this region is an old dairy farming region, and they, uh, you know, dairy farmers have been hurting for a really long time, and so they are, you know, leveraged with debt to the hilt. The they're at the whim of a milk market that's controlled by. A very small number of very wealthy people, uh, and so they're they're hurting financially, and so they've seen this as a way to uh, cash in on their decades of hard work. the The objection I have to that is that many many of them say, "Well, this is going to help us. It's going to be an infusion of capital, and we're going to keep on farming." Uh, my uh, complaint with that argument is that basically. Hydraulic fracturing and farming are not compatible land uses. So if you are going to welcome uh, a gas drilling rig onto your farm, you're going to compromise the safety and quality of your soil, air, and water. So how can you uh, project out past that to say that you are actually going to be able to successfully raise whatever crop or animal it is that you're farming? Wow. So... Um, how are there any like uh, information resources that you found particularly useful? I mean, I think one of the things uh, for me that's been kind of challenging with regards to wrapping my head around this issue is just getting a sense of, of where to go for information, um, especially because often the loudest voices are at kind of the extreme ends. Um, so just trying to have maybe a balanced kind of discussion of. Of, of pros and cons, you know, and I think one of the things that it seems to me is challenging about something like that is you're kind of, you know, making decisions based on kind of different metrics, but but maybe there's a, a resource that you, you, you would direct us to that you feel like really puts the issue in, in pretty simple language and clear light. Well, there's, it's interesting. There is so much information out there. I mean, it's, you know, and it's so different than five years ago. It's, it's just kind of, it's shocking. And so it, like many complicated issues, like you just said, you have to be a really discerning, uh, you have to have a discerning eye to it to interpret it in which way, um, you know, in, in every which way. So, um, you know, resources to me like the Delaware Riverkeeper Network uh, have been very helpful. Catskill Mountain Keeper has been very helpful. Um, I also, um, you know, I, I read a lot of the kind of industry spin on this. You know, there's uh, groups like uh, Energy in Depth, which is a which is an industry lobbying group that uh, spins a whole bunch of PR out about this. It's uh, you know it's really good to read their stuff and square that up with everything else. Um, you know to take both sides, and I you know I definitely take pieces from from everywhere. Um, and uh, there's been a, there was a great series uh, in New York Times last year, which many of your listeners uh, probably saw, um, which was revelatory uh, in a lot of ways, but you know, most specifically in terms of the inability of state regulators to uh, really control this industry. 
Um, you know, they really focused on Pennsylvania in, in that series, but, but even beyond in Ohio and the West, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that kind of harkens back to one of my, my main questions, which I already said that, that hasn't been answered, and I've asked it so many times, which is, you know, if, if this technology is so safe, why can't you, why can't you comply with, uh, with this basic environmental legislation? Yeah, I think it's a, a very powerful and simple question. Heather, you had some resources that you guys were recommending as well? Or? Yeah, there's one that uh, we work with pretty closely. It's called Food and Water Watch. And they also, mm-hmm. they have, <clears throat> excuse me, they have really great resources for um, the dates of, you know, government decisions, legislations, um, you know, even just community groups. And they also happen to work internationally, which though we're talking on the local level, fracking is, you know, a threat internationally at this point. And there have been a lot of uh, countries who have really taken a stand against banning it, like France. So um, I think that's a really good resource to, to consider. I would definitely go to them. Excellent. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to kind of get uh, get your perspective. We are actually going to bring on one more farmer today. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Thank then. you. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have Luce Guanzini of Highwood Farms um, on to give her perspective on fracking. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We are back, taking a dramatic pause for effect. You are tuned into the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to the Farm Report. I am your host, Erin Fairbanks, and we are in studio with two of the ladies of the Chefs for Marcellus and on the line with Luce, Luce Guanzini of Highwood Farm. Luce, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for taking time out of I know it's a busy day for you um, to call in and kind of give your perspective on this issue. Um, I thought we would start with getting a little bit uh, of your background. I, I know we've had your husband, Mark, on the show uh, as you guys participate in the No Goat Left Behind project we did last year, but you also work full-time off the farm. That's correct? That's correct, yep. I work at Cornell. Um, I work at the vet school primarily. Excellent. And you guys are raising meat goats up in Spencer, New York. That's correct, yep. we started kidding and have about oh, 15 or 17 on the ground at the moment. That's awesome. Things are going pretty smoothly in the kidding arena? So far, so good. Excellent. And just as a reminder, how long have you guys been farming? Um, we've been on this property uh, about eight, six 
16 years now, I think, and uh, had goats on the property for about 14. I had raised sheep and goats prior to that, so I've really been doing this um, since I finished college in 84. Wow, so got some years under your belt there. <laughs> it seems that way. <laughs> so you guys are located not far from, from Pennsylvania, I think uh, just around 25 miles from some active shale fields, is that correct? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Uh, Bradford County is just about 20, 25 miles south of us. We're, um, we're just north of uh, Waverly, New York, if people find that on a map. Uh, Nichols, New York, and due south of that is some of the, um, the shale gas activity or uh, drilling region that's been in the news. So when you guys you know, came onto your property up uh, at Highwood, was fracking an issue that was on your radar, or how did you guys kind of start hearing about it? Um, certainly fracking was not on radar. Um, there have been conventional gas wells in this area for many years. Um, the first property that I owned in Newfield actually had a, a lease on it that was expiring at the time I bought the property back in 84. Um, so I think that folks in this area sort of felt like they knew a little something about con- about gas wells, and that would be conventional gas wells. Um, the companies started coming back into the area and actively leasing again about probably 10 years ago, and at that time they talked to us about the Trenton Black River formation. Um, that gas is, if I remember correctly, about 10,000 feet deep, and those are essentially conventional gas wells where the drilling is primarily uh, vertical, um, and there's a single well on a pad, and the uh, drilling units are 640 acres. So, and so there's been um, wells of that nature uh, in our town that were developed probably eight to ten years ago. But five years ago, when a lot of folks in our area released, there was no discussion of fracking with the residents um, or this type of um, industrial uh, gas development. And shortly after we had actually signed a no-surface rights lease, it was all over the news that there was this fantastic new technology where gas was going to come out of the ground everywhere. So a lot of folks in our area were blindsided by um, this sort of development. Well, that's like a really interesting perspective and, and one that I haven't heard before, just, just with regards to that, like there was a history uh, of gas drilling that, uh, am I kind of getting the right implication from you that it had gone kind of well for people in the past, essentially? Um, yeah, um, I, I would say you could probably characterize it as well. There were you know, we didn't have any explosions. We didn't hear too much of anything about contaminated water wells. Um, there were rumors that some landowners had made quite a bit of money over a short period of time. So I think at least initially um, people, you know, thought that it was more of the same. Um, but that's proven not to be the case. And you had mentioned you, you signed a no, a no surface rights. Is that what you said? Can you talk a little bit more about what that is? That's right. That's right. So in New York State, there's a law called compulsory integration. And what that means is that if a company has uh, 60% of the land already leased in a proposed unit, and again, a unit is 640 acres, and how that unit is drawn is worked out, as I understand it, between the gas company and the DEC. If 60% of the land is already under lease, then the remaining acreage in that unit is is produced anyway, and the 
folks that are in the unit but don't have a lease undergo what's called compulsory integration. Um, so what that means is that they take the gas anyway, and you will get paid, and how you get paid, you have a little bit of say over. You can become a part owner in the well, or you can essentially accept what would have been the lease agreement that was offered at the time you presumably refused to sign. Um, so knowing that, uh, about five, well, almost six years ago now, um, we decided after a lot of fretting, frankly, <laughs> that, uh, that we would sign a no-surface rights lease. And what that means is that the gas company doesn't have any right to actually come onto your property or drill on your property, but you have agreed to accept their terms of the lease should you end up in a unit. Um, so our lease, actually, we tried to, to uh, adjust a little bit to ensure some better guarantees about water quality. Um, the standard lease that ta what had been Fortuna and then became Talisman was signing at the time is that if your water is damaged, they would make, I think the phrase was something like, all commercially viable attempts to restore your water, and we struck the commercially viable and you know, left in all attempts to restore potable water. But, of course, in retrospect, that was really rather foolhardy on our part because they, they seem to get away with not restoring anybody's potable water, and, in fact, they probably can't. But uh, at any rate, that's sort of the short story there. That sounds really complicated. And, and I, I just have to say, you know, as, as someone whose, you know, primary profession, is, you know, is food production, I mean, did you need to engage with, you know, legal counsel or how did you navigate those conversations and even making informed decisions about what to include or not include? And, you know, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. but what are kind of the on the ground resources for people looking to, you know, ask some questions of, of these types of arrangements? Well, at that time, there were some lawyers, you know, some attorneys practicing in the area. Of course, many neighbors were being approached. So, you know, the communities were talking about this. Um, there were some landowner coalitions that uh, were formed, I think, dating back to that time. Again, you're talking between five and ten years ago. Um, the current one that's just been in the press for uh, potentially signing a lease um, with a company whose name is going to slip my mind that's proposing this um, gel propane, this new fracking technique. I think that landowners coalition has been in existence for you know, quite a few years and probably dating back to that time. So there were some resources um, in the area uh, to gather information about, but again, uh, the, the type of development that we're talking about now is, was simply not on the table. Um, the landmen that come around and, you know, talk to you about what this might look like, you know, when you ask questions about, well, you know, what's the activity going to be like while the well is being drilled and what's the traffic like and how big is the well pad and, you know, what are your um, limitations on the pipeline and these sorts of things. Um, that, that was all quite different then. And so, so what do things look like for you now? I mean, say that the, you know, moratorium is lifted, how would that impact your business? Well, um, it would certainly make it a very unpleasant place to live as far as I'm concerned. I grew up on Long Island and wanted desperately to live in a rural area. In fact, we spent summers right in the northeast corner of Pennsylvania, which is also currently um, threatened by this sort of development. Uh, so I 
very much wanted to live in a rural area from my childhood. And if this goes forward, it simply won't be a rural area anymore. Um, the If the gas companies had their way and had full development, there would be a well pad approximately every half a mile in every direction. Um, The number of wells on a single pad could be somewhere up in the number of 24. Um, It takes, according to Dr. Ingrafia here at Cornell and a number of other sources, it takes two to nine million gallons of water to frack a single well. So that turns into hundreds and hundreds of um, trips with tanker trucks. So you're really talking about changing the landscape in the community quite dramatically. The town of Tawanda where, um, uh, in Bradford County, where this is sort of the hub of this activity. It's a small town where you used to be able to drive through it in a few minutes' time, five minutes, ten minutes, you were through the town center. Now we hear about people that it will take an hour to just get through town because the traffic is so backed up. Um, people whose commutes to work have been increased exponentially. Uh, it, it, it really is just um, its shocking to go into that area. It was known as the Endless Mountains of Pennsylvania. It was really, really beautiful and it, you know, just the truck traffic alone makes it not so beautiful anymore and not very pleasant to drive around down there. Wow. So we are in the studio with um, Heather and Alyssa of Chefs from Marcellus. They're a New York City-based organization that works with um, chefs and food professionals in the kind of urban center to draw attention to this issue and and do some partnership with farms like yours. And I think, Heather, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, so we're just talking about, you know, sort of what the effects of a small town would be. And I think a lot of the things also that people also don't realize is that, you know, they talk a lot about bringing jobs to these areas and dire need of employment. And most of the people that are going to be working these rigs are not from here. They are outsourced, you know. That's, that's that, absolutely right. You yeah. know, and, and the businesses that actually do benefit from what I'm hearing right now at restaurants, bars, um, bordellos, and the drug trade. Because yeah. all these people are, you know, they're offshore drillers. They are very transient it brings in a different element into most areas. Also, the biggest um, injuries that happen from these drillings are chemical burns and fire burns. And most of these places don't have burn units. You know, they're far, far away. Yes, that's that's correct. Um, there's also, uh, because of the influx of, of uh, outsiders, if you will, the, um, the cost of renting a home has doubled and tripled. Um, I read a statistic... It was about 18 months ago, uh, probably now, from Bradford County, where they uh, recorded an increase uh, of admissions into foster care for children of uh, 30%. And I thought, what, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But when you step back and think about it, it makes quite good sense. People who are poor can't afford their housing anymore. They end up homeless. They turn their kids into foster, into the foster care system. So it has quite dramatic uh, impacts. I I know another um, acquaintance who has a friend who has a small business down in Pennsylvania and he was paying if I remember correctly around $500 a month to rent a little office space for his business and you know the landlord increased the rent dramatically he can't afford to rent that space anymore so it, it displaces a lot of um, uh, people in the community and really kind of upsets the economy. And they're really not, there's a few, you know, there's some jobs as waitresses and in the service industry, um, but they're really not jobs for local people. 
And also remember, these, you know, once the fracking's over, they can only drill for so long. These industries leave. You know, the people leave. The customers leave. That's right. Yeah, it's a boom-bust sort of an arrangement. And the wells leak, um, and these wells will, uh, uh, you know, leave a, a legacy of environmental damage that New York State taxpayers are going to have to clean up. Um, if uh, people are interested, uh, Dr. Tony Engrafia has some great information. You can you can search his name, and I'm sure it'll it'll come right up. Um, he presented some data uh, that's actually industry data that that shows that conventional gas wells um, in the first year, six percent of those are leaking methane, so they failed. They're not capturing all the methane uh, that that has been um, disturbed underground, if you will. At year 30, 60% of those wells are leaking methane. And there's no reason to believe that the, uh, the current um, shale gas wells will do any better. In fact, the early data indicates that they leak at, at similar rates. And they've only been drilling these types of wells and using this type of technology for f- about five years now. So it's really early days yet. Uh, and with a well every half mile, you know, I think the potential for uh, long-term damage to the environment and the water supply is really tremendous. Wow. Luce, I'm so sorry we are out of time, but thank you uh, so much for coming on and sharing your perspective. And I think really painting uh, a pretty intense portrait uh, of some of the things that are possible um, should, should this moratorium be lifted. So thank you so much for your well, time. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to, um, to share what's going on here with your audience. Excellent. I um, want to give ladies a, a, another chance to shout out about the uh, PESTO event coming up this weekend. <laughs> yeah, one of our many more interesting uh, fundraisers. <laughs> uh, it's going to be on the 29th on Sunday and at the Journey's Culinary and Herb Center in Brooklyn at 540 President Street. And tickets are $25 and it's from noon to 4. All right, folks, put your money where your mouth is. Get a ticket, go out, enjoy some delicious pesto, and tune in next week at 1 o'clock for another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archive programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.